Have you found the keys to unlock your best trip? On a Trafalgar tour, you unlock more than just the world. We give you the keys to discover real connections and one-of-a-kind experiences. It all starts with expert itineraries where everything is taken care of. With Trafalgar, your money goes further, and so do you. Unlock your best self. Discover more at trafalgar.com slash unlock. That's T-R-A-F-A-L-G-A-R dot com slash unlock. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe right. Get your strip on. Use as directed. Hey, Friday Night Lights fans. It's not only football. Friday Night Lights and Beyond is an episode-by-episode discussion of the hit TV series Friday Night Lights, hosted by yours truly, Scott Porter, who played Jason Street on the show, and my two wonderful co-hosts. Me, Zach Guilford, a.k.a. Matt Saracen. And me, Mae Whitman, a.k.a. someone who wasn't on the show but really, really loves it a lot. We will also bring on some special guests, answer your questions, and tell you about what's going on in our lives today. It's not only football. Friday Night Lights and Beyond is a Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. I've mentioned repeatedly that uh, the health insurance doesn't always cover the full cost of an emergency flight. Even with comprehensive coverage, you can still get hit with substantial deductibles and co-pays. Protect your family, protect your finances with an Air MedCare Network membership. As a member, if an emergency arises, the expense of an air medical transport is completely covered when flown by an AMCN provider. Membership costs as little as $85 a year and covers your entire household every day, even when you're away from home, of course. That is just pennies a day. We all know that the unexpected can happen. An AMCN membership is protection no family should be without. And for a limited time, as a Dr. Drew podcast listener, you'll get up to a $75 e-gift card when you join. Simply visit airmedcarenetwork.com forward slash Drew and use that offer code Drew. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Dr. Podcast. I want to get right to my guest. I'm very excited to speak to him today. Again, keep the sales in the winds of the Corolla Pirate Ship. Don't forget us at drdrew.tv for the streaming shows and, of course, After Dark at drdrew.com at your mom's house. Uh, the guest today is Matt Ridley. You can follow him on Twitter at Matt with two T's, W Ridley, R-I-D-L-E-Y. Uh, website is mattridley.co.uk. The book we're going to discuss is available now, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19. Uh, Matt, though, has many other books, has sold over a million copies, translated in multiple languages. He has a very um, popularly, popularly viewed TED Talk, which we're going to talk about. And he writes a weekly column in the Times of London and writes regularly for the Wall Street Journal. Viscount Ridley was elected to the House of Lords. Uh, Viscount, welcome to the pro- program. I've never spoken to a Viscount before, I don't believe. <laughs> well, most people don't even know what one is. I, I, I must say, I, I know how to pronounce it. I don't know what it is. I, 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 the last time I saw a Viscount was in uh, Dangerous Liaisons. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think you're probably right there. Well, I, I'm not sure that's uh, a very good description of me at the moment, but anyway. <laughs> So uh, just so we flesh out uh, Matt's background, he's a doctor of philosophy from 
Oxford. I uh, worked for The Economist for years, uh, Washington correspondent, American editor before coming employed by himself. So, Matt, if you wouldn't mind, just the, the TED Talk you do uh, or have done, When Ideas Have Sex, can you just sketch that for me so people understand what that was? Yeah, um, this w- was based around my book, The Rational Optimist, in which I argued that the world was on the whole getting better, not worse, that there was this extraordinary uh, treadmill of uh, innovation that was driving living standards upwards, almost despite what we do, despite wars and depressions and everything else. And clearly that comes about because human beings in some sense um, are an innovative species and other creatures are not. Why is that? And I think it's because they engage in specialization and exchange. Uh, the more they swap things, the more they can become specialized at what they're good at, and that enables them to become innovative at what they're good at. And so what we've done over human history is we've invented this extraordinary system where each of us does something very narrow and um, specialized and supplies it to lots and lots of other people. And we can then... Uh, feast upon all the other specialized things that other people do for us. And so there's this this network of collaboration. Uh, and, and the result, uh, you know, uh, the, the most striking result of this is that when you think about it, the simplest object in our lives, and there was a beautiful essay about a pencil that made this point, is not made by an individual person. It's made by hundreds of thousands of people, you know, growing coffee for each other while they cut down trees, where the wood is going to be used to make the pencil in the pencil factory and then marketing the pencil and so on. You know, there's an enormous number of people involved and not one of them knows how to make a pencil. Right. The knowledge doesn't exist inside a human head of how to make a pencil. The knowledge exists between human heads. So it's that process of, um, uh, of, of exchange and specialization. And exchange is playing the same role here uh, in the evolution of human society that sex is playing in the evolution of human biology. It's mixing up the genes. It's mixing up ideas so that ideas can meet and mate and have baby ideas. So so uh, there's a, a lot packed into that. I, I want to just, uh, just parse out a couple of things. Uh, the pencil essay is much like the sailor's coat in Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations, correct? Yes. Uh, and this sounds very much like Adam Smith's observations about economies. You've sort of blown out to include ideas and other forms of exchange, right? In any industry, in lack of a better word. Absolutely. And I, I, I mean, I, my admiration for Adam Smith just goes up and up. Every time I go back and read, read uh, The Wealth of Nations, yeah. I think he's often more acute than people who came after him in understanding what's going on in the world. And, you know, it's an incredibly radical book. And uh, so the the way I put it is that he's looking at the world in a sort of bottom-up way about the emergent properties of, uh, of, of civilization, you know, that we, that we, um, the, the, the economy comes about not because somebody's planning it, but because we're all collaborating and that create, creates a sort of beautiful whole. It's very much the same idea that Darwin had, a century later. So I call Adam Smith's version the general theory of evolution and Darwin's the special theory of evolution. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and so it, it doesn't surprise me you would say that because you were sort of referencing cultural and intellectual memes, weren't you? Isn't that sort of the notion? Or, or, or and, the, and that memes as, I guess it was, was it Hawkins or somebody mentioned this? Richard, Richard Dawkins, right? Richard Dawkins. Yeah. He coined, coined the word meme. Yeah. So it's a great idea. Um, yeah. And is that what you're talking about? You're talking about cultural memes and ideal memes and industrial memes. And these are all this little monads of information that we can uh, cling on to. Yeah. And, and they go extinct sometimes and they uh, fail to catch on in other occasions. But other, But sometimes they spread and they displace others. If you look at... You know, if you look at the English language, for example, it's a man-made phenomenon. You know, it's not a natural thing like a rock or a, or a rainforest. Oh, careful. It's happening it's, in our brain. That's natural. <laughs> right? Um, yeah. But, but the, um, it, it, you know, it, it's obviously invented by people. 
but it's not invented by one clever person or right. anything like that. Right. It's, it's invented by all of us and reinvented by all of us all the time. Yes. Um, there's a rather wonderful Scottish philosopher called Adam Ferguson who said there are things that are the result of human action but not the result of human design. Um, so, uh, and I think the English language is a good example of that. I think the internet is a good example of that. Uh, yes, you know, it took a few pioneers to put the internet together to start with, but since then it has evolved with all of us making small contributions to the way it, it changes. Um, and there's nobody in charge. You know, there isn't a committee that that, that tells us how to change the internet. Um, every now and then people try and set up such a committee, but it's usually a flop. Um, and, uh, so I'm, I'm, I just think we don't see the world in a bottom-up enough way. Another beautiful example borrowed from a French philosopher is, uh, economist, is how does London get fed or how does Paris get fed? You know, there's 10 million people eat lunch every day in Paris, maybe, I don't know, maybe more, maybe less. And um, nobody's in charge of making sure that there's enough of the right food in the right place you know just enough avocados here just enough fish there just enough cheese you know and yet nobody's making up their mind what they want to eat till the last minute you know uh, and how does it happen it's incredible isn't it it's amazing yeah it's amazing and and it's not immediately i i mean adam smith's observations i'm going back to the sailor's coat which is he describes in a long essay in one of his not even essays a chapter in one of his book Wealth of Nations about how the sailor where the sailor's coat comes from. Somebody's making the butts, the buttons. Someone's making the thread. Someone's the shepherd for the sheep. Someone's shearing the sheep. Someone's weaving the sheep. It's just all these exactly. people, and it's not immediately apparent. This is what I found interesting about this. When he made that observation, it was not immediately apparent that that should be efficient in any way. Right, If you were sitting down as a human being going, how would I make a coat? I go, well, I'd buy some cloth, I'd cut it out, and I'd sew everything on. It's like that's how you make a coat, and that's probably the way I'd save the most money is if I did that by myself. No, it turns out that the same thing that puts the uh, escargot on the plates in Paris is the same thing that determines that somebody uh, on a on a sailor's uh, salary you know, in, in 18th century England – can uh, buy a peacoat, right? And right. it's not—it's not obvious that they should work like that. Yeah, no, you're right. And and some somebody did try and make oh. a suit from scratch a few years ago. Yeah, you know, they, they said, right, I'm gonna I'm gonna rear a sheep. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna cut its fleece. I'm gonna do all the processes. To yeah. it. I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna um, dig, go and dig up the materials that I need to dye it. You know, and yeah. all these kind of things. Yeah. Um, it took him years. I think he had a grant from an art organization or something so to do this, interesting. the project. Yeah. Uh, and it took, it took years, and he came out with a really poor suit. <laughs> That's interesting also. So uh, I'm sorry. A couple more questions before we get on to COVID. Um, you use the word emergence, and, and that's a very loaded term for me. I'm always trying to understand what it is. What, what do you mean when you say an emergent property? What I mean is that uh, – it's not something that somebody has set out to achieve. Uh, it has it, 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 it has come around, come about as a as a byproduct of right, uh, and, it, and it's something other than the individual parts. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it's great. It's it's more exactly. It's, yeah. it's more than the sum of the parts. Yeah, um, and it's uh, it's it's an almost accidental outcome of people. You know, people are motivated. You know, they are not saying, how do we feed Paris? Right. They're saying, how do I make a living? But out of that comes the feeding of Paris. And, and is that the same thing as what you're calling bottom-up? Very much so. Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. it's part of the same process. Okay. Because I'm not quite sure I have a clear beat on bottom-up other than emergent and local concerns that create emergent properties on a larger scale, a larger stage, so to speak. Yeah, well, you know, this isn't entirely irrelevant to the last two years we've been through. Go. Um, this is how uh, we're going to get into this. Let's go. <laughs> go ahead. Because, because you know, when a pandemic occurs, the reaction of a lot of people is, right, we need people to socially distance so that we can slow the spread of the virus. How do we do that? Well, we tell them to. We order them to stay at home. We order them to do this, that. Can, can, I, can I stop well, you already? Because... 
I, I, there's a guy named uh, Dr. Brilliant, believe it or not, is his name, and he's a he's a smallpox expert. Have you ever talked to Dr. Brilliant? It's Larry Brilliant, I think, is his name. Larry Brilliant. I, yeah. I know his name. No, yeah. I don't think I've talked to him. Well, I've talked to him, and, and he, he said, look, I've gone out and studied m- multiple smallpox outbreaks, and here's what happens with humans in this setting of highly contagious, highly deadly infections. You don't need to tell, tell them anything. They automatically distance. They automatically stay home. That exactly. We, yeah. So the idea of tell yeah. people to do something is already possibly even anathema to, to good practices. So, right. So why didn't we say at the beginning of the pandemic, we need people to, to, to separate, to you know, isolate to some degree. What incentives can we put in place to help them do that, yes. to reward them for doing yes. that? Yes. Instead of what, what sticks are we going to hit them with That's to make right. them do that? And they're not even. They're not even sticks. A- they're they're more than sticks. They they were you know they were. Um, what would yeah. that be? The orders. You know those were those were. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, or else. Then the yeah, sticks. Yeah, that's came. what I call. I call that top down, and I think we should have been more bottom up about it. Well, okay. So you've now put your finger on something that uh, we've jumped all the way past your book, I think. <laughs> we'll get back to it. But you put your your finger on something that I've been thinking a lot about lately, which is what happened to my profession. So I'm, an, I'm a physician. I watched, I watched what happened, and I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen this behavior before. It was astonishing to me what doctors did, particularly in the first six to 12 months of this pandemic. It was, speaking of anathema, it was anathema to, to good practice. And what it was, as I see now in retrospect, is physicians ceded their normal responsibility and decision-making to a central authority. Now, why did they do that? Well, naturally, first of all, first of all, we are a military system, and we are always under the sway of our academic peers, and you know, we we're just used to taking orders and things, and that that's sort of in the system already. But this still was like nothing I'd ever seen. We're prone, also, as I was at the beginning, to say, "Well, listen to the CDC, listen to the leaders of the CDC. They'll they'll tell us, and then we'll actuate what we need to do." But. The, the centralization of decision-making in medicine is absolutely not suited to, to patient outcome. Uh, and, and, the, and the idea is, you know, we are highly trained to be improvisational and to know the literature and to think for ourselves and to make decisions on behalf of the patient. We're the only ones that are making the decisions on behalf of the individual sitting in front of us, period. That's our, that's our responsibility and nothing else. But this idea that we've given up our I, – I mean it's, it's the centralization versus the decentralization. And I remember this happening back in the 90s when you know, I, was, I was practicing 14 hours a day and things and, and there was a lot of regulation starting to come in. And I remember saying back then, hey, if I'm such a shitty physician, send me back for more training. I like training. If I'm not good enough to make these decisions, you have to regulate me or watch me, then send me back for more training. No, more regulation, more centralization, and then this pandemic was the really the the ultimate expression of a road we've been heading down for twenty five years. So I'll let you deal with that comment. Well, I think that's a very very interesting comment, um, and I agree with 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 a great deal of it. The, the centralization being the issue here. Um, that uh, you know, for example. You, the medical profession, were told we need ventilators. Everyone needs to be ventilated, yeah. and then that turned out not to be a particularly good um, way of saving the lives of people who got sick with this particular virus. Um, uh, and the, the the capacity for learning by doing mm. um, on the job mm-hmm. uh, that we would need in facing a new disease that we've never seen before yep. was ignored. Yep. You know, Completely. you've got this virus in front of you. We're finding out in the first weeks, it's killing old people, but not young people. Uh, it's killing them by dropping their oxygen levels dramatically. Um, even though they, they aren't particularly sort of congested in their lungs, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, the, this requires different thought. Um, it's, it's causing thrombosis in them. We didn't expect that. What needs to happen is that doctors on the front line need to, to be um, learning, experimenting, uh, 
uh, improvising, as you say, and then spreading good practice through their networks to each other. 100%. And let me tell you, let me tell you, there was a massive difference because I was acutely watching what was going on. There was a massive difference between my surgical colleagues and my medical colleagues. In that that surgeons, the, the regulators cannot get involved in the improvisational process of doing a surgery. Surgeons are problem-solving every inch of the way through a surgery and improvising and writing off. They're doing stuff all the time that requires freedom to improvise within the surgical field. So as you soon as this have a thing, commissar in the, in the, you, in the you can't, the they, they would love to trust me, but they can't. <laughs> and so the surgeons were not uh, prone to be under the sway of the centralized authority. And my surgical colleagues were calling me all the time. Like, if you tried this, if you tried that, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And I thought, please do it. Go tell me how it works. The medical guys were frozen in place, frozen. Because the medical men and women have been been under the – they're all employees now. And they're all required to follow clinical pathways and, quote, best practices and these things that are just bureaucratic nonsense. And, you know, even in the ICUs where they were starting to improvise a little bit, the bureaucracy stepped right in. You can't use this. You can't use that. Well, maybe we'll use toxiluzumab one day, but not right now. We don't know about Paxlovid yet. We're going to decide Why? Why should you decide? And so they were all employees. They were all in big hospital systems, and they were all fearful of losing their job, fearful of the mob on social media, fearful of the uh, disdain of their academic peers, which also was out of control during the time. And why the academics bought into the nonsense so much is still kind of mysterious to me. But again, you've you've pushed a button here that is very emotional for me because I I lived this thing in real time, and it was deeply concerning to me. The scientific profession that I think comes out worst from this um, pandemic is the modeling profession. I think the mathematical modeling was um, extraordinarily irresponsible because it was Mm. focused on worst-case scenarios always. Um, uh, There's some reason for that, that we don't need to worry so much about the best-case scenarios. But they weren't explicit about that. They kept kept allowing their worst-case scenarios to be presented as projections or predictions. Yes. They would they would back off afterwards and say oh, we didn't mean that to be a prediction. That was just a, you know, a what if. Yes. Um, yeah. well you can't have it both ways. You can't expect to be advising governments on what to do based on a mathematical model. Yeah. And then say afterwards, yeah, it was wrong, but that doesn't matter because it wasn't a prediction. Yeah. Um, and there are some shocking cases actually. Uh, you know, in the UK here uh, in December the 2021, you know, Pretty late in the pandemic, we had the the mathematical modelers saying Omicron is going to be devastating. Well, but now, Millions now, not, not just any mathematical modelers. It was the same Oxford group that effed everything up all the way through. And it was a particular guy. What's his name? Professor Neil uh, Ferguson. At Ferguson. I mean, my God. Yeah. My God. Why do and, we, and, I mean, and he's never been right on anything. He has, he has a track record of bad predictions yeah. in multiple pandemics. Why is anyone listening to that guy? And I mean, I crossed swords with him, uh, actually, in Parliament uh, about this, because I said, look, you know, in Sweden, you predicted a huge number of your, yes. your models predicted yes. a huge number of deaths. And yes. you said, we, we never predicted anything in Sweden. Uh, I said, I know, but, but a university used your model. No, they didn't. So I, uh, I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm wrong. I went and looked it up. And they, you know, they very explicitly said, this is the Ferguson model of we're using. We adapted it to Sweden. Of course. And it's, it's predicting 90,000 deaths, and they've only had 5,000. You know, uh, I mean, it was... Um, uh, you know, the, the 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 idea that just because you can write a mathematical equation, you are going to be able to foretell the future is, I'm afraid, up there with with astrology. You know, it's yes. it's a dangerous myth. Um, and the reason, you, you know, you can write a mathematical uh, equation that models the um, seasons, you know, the, the, the fact that this, the days are getting longer in the summer and shorter in the winter. You know, there are some things that are predictable, yes. but multi-causal, emergent property, um, uh, dynamic systems like an epidemic, like an economy, um, like the weather, are predictable only at very short intervals, you yes. know, only a short distance ahead. And the reason is obvious. Once 
people start getting sick with a dangerous virus, they change their behavior. Of course. Amazingly, the modelers have just admitted that they never put that into their main models. Wow. Amazing. I also, I did not like that they did not really emphasize their uh, confidence intervals. Because I, I don't mind be. predictions as long as it's in the context of probabilities and, and let us an- analyze that. Then the real villain in this is not even them so much as the press. The press taking these things as thus saith the Lord. And, and, that, and then you have on this continent organizations like the New York Times editorial board demanding medical policy. People who just learned to say the words associated with these medical processes now dictating policy. Mind-blowing. Exactly. Mind-blowing. We've had, yeah, we've had the same with the BBC in, 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 in this country. And um, uh, the, 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 the media has always had a, a much greater fascination with disaster than triumph. Yes. Um, yes. You know, they want to talk about things going wrong much yes. more. Yes. Um, and uh, but it resulted, you know, let's not underestimate the significance of this pandemic. It was a terrible disaster. Yes, of course. It did kill a lot of, of people. Course. And it, it was it, a bad illness. Did need, yes. A lot of things needed to be done to try and stop it. Yes. It, and, you know, particularly the vaccines were a great success story, at least initially, although they had um, they weren't as good at preventing transmission as we'd hoped. Right. Um, certainly with but, the latest. But, look, we've done it. We've done an OK job once we start. You stopped using a sledgehammer. Yeah. Exactly. And, but, and started but, using a multi-pronged but, approach, which if, we should have done at the beginning. But if we have learned from this pandemic if. that the first thing you do in a crisis is hand the government a lot of rather draconian powers yeah. and have a small committee at the center tell everyone else what to do no, wrong. with the force of law yeah. and with enormous fines and punishments if yeah. you don't terrible. obey it. Terrible. Um, then Worse. I'm really quite scared for the world my kids are going to have to live in because yes. that isn't the way to run society. Right. And so are we going to I, – I, have we learned something? Are we going to put some limits on that for the next time? I, I, is, is there going to be a postmortem on this where we start to, at least through the courts, mill through the, the uh, sort of limits of these powers? Well, I hope so. But I, I think the opposite lesson is being learned, Uh-oh. namely that – If you are a a prime minister or president and you pass, you get a law passed saying you can do anything you like and you're going to lock people up if they don't do what they're told, it's not very unpopular. In fact, it's quite popular. But but that's (laughs) weird. That's weird. The the opinion polls were what they were looking at. You know, the moment the opinion polls started saying, hang on, people want to be free, then they started backing off. But for a year and a half, because of the media telling everyone to be scared stiff, yeah. the public was very censorious about anybody who didn't wear a mask, who didn't take proper precautions, mm-hmm. who was uh, uh, not being sufficiently alarmist, mm-hmm. etc. Mm-hmm. And so the, 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 the censorious public is telling the politicians through opinion polls that a very top-down and very dirigiste way of running the country is actually a electorally quite a successful strategy I th- that's I a think, worrying development. I, I think that's a temp I, that we're now we're going back to the collective uh processes of human culture this show is sponsored by better help and this holiday season do something special for someone in your life you Holiday can be a tough time. I think everyone knows that. And having someone to talk to about your feelings and what you can do about it is a gift. Whether or not you've been in therapy, this is now the time. There's no longer any excuses when you have better help. This idea of stigma or embarrassment running into somebody, none of those things apply any longer. It's, it's, there's just no excuse. You take care of the rest of your body. Why don't you take care of your brain? As the world's largest Therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists, 100% online, plus it is affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things are not clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. Could not be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash Drew. That is BetterHelp, BetterH-E-L-P.com slash Drew. Our friend Jordan Harbinger, the Jordan Harbinger podcast is something you really should be listening to. 
I know people tell you that, but Jordan is an interesting guy, a smart guy, crazy life experiences, brings interesting dynamic to the conversation, always pulling useful, practical insights out of his guests. And uh, I, the guests are carefully selected. I, I've really learned something, in particularly in recent months. I enjoy listening to the Jordan Harbinger Show. They cover a wide range of topics, so there's an episode for everyone, no matter what you're into. For instance, uh, how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. That's the kind of thing you will see at the Jordan Harbinger Show. I enjoy this show. I think you will, too. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcast. It is The Jordan Harbinger Show. Well, crowd health isn't exactly insurance. That's why it works. With insurance, you pay huge premiums, high deductibles, which means on top of the thousands you pay to keep your plan, you end up paying even more. Crowd Health is putting the community back in community health care and giving its members access to high-quality care for up to 60% less in the process. One in six claims are denied by healthcare.gov plans. No wonder so many people choose to take their chances without insurance. With Crowd Health, you will pay one low monthly total to fund your account and get access to the Crowd Health community. 100% of your monthly contribution directly funds and reduces healthcare costs for the community. That's right. Unlike insurance, Crowd Health succeeds by keeping its member happy, not by driving up the price. It reverses the vicious incentives that got the healthcare system into the mess it is in in the first place. Don't let healthcare cost stand between you and your future. Join Crowd Health today. Right now, you can get your first six months for just $99 per month. That is almost 50% off the normal price and a lot less than a high deductible healthcare plan. Just go to joincrowdhealth.com. Use promo code Drew at signup. That is joincrowdhealth.com, promo code Drew. Crowd Health is not health insurance. It's a totally different way of paying for health care. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, you know that I love Bowl and Branch, love their sheets, love their towels. We sleep on them every night. Bowl and Branch signature sheets are so soft and light, you will forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud, and they are sustainably made for uncompromising quality field to factory. That's right. They only use 100% sustainable raw material. They have buttery, soft, lightweight, organic cotton, classic satin weave for sheets that get softer over time. Not too hot, not too cold. Bull and Branch focuses on quality over quantity. Made to higher standards, 100% organic cotton, ethical production. And nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit. Bull and Branch offers 17-inch deep-fitted sheets and labeled size to help you make your bed beautifully every time. And for the Dr. Drew Podcast listeners, you can get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use promo code Dr. Drew at checkout. That is Bowl and Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, Branch, B-R-A-N-C-H, com promo code Drew. Uh, that to me seems like something of the collective personality construct of the current historical moment. Because there's lots of narcissism, and I would argue that we sort of tilted into histrionic, where damn darn near, well, frankly, delusional thinking started to kick in. Uh, and that is not normal. That, that's something uh, about them. I don't think that's a normative human process, uh, nor do I think is narcissism the, to the degree that we have it presently normal. I, I Again, I worked in a psychiatric hospital back in the 80s, and I watched it start. We had – you know, they have these uh, uh, personality diagnoses as you come in the hospital. And back when I started there, there was a whole range, A, B, and C categories. You know, there are three different clusters of personalities. Well, everyone's all over the place. By the early 90s, Everyone was cluster B. And when I say everyone, I mean everyone, which is narcissism, narcissism, sociopath, borderline. And it did not shift for the next 20 years. And when I started well, – a couple of things happened. I started looking at all these patients. They're all childhood trauma. The, the magnitude of childhood trauma, particularly sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect, was out of control. We had a pandemic of this uh, that we were moving through that was not normal, number one. Number two, the really interesting thing was – uh, that the system was starting to shift to support the pathologies of this of this uh, uh, cluster, particularly borderline. I, I noticed in the 90s, every single borderline patient that came in the hospital had a minimum of 20 lawsuits under their belt. 
So the system had sort of begun to support the pathologies, and it's gone further in that direction ever since. Yeah. And, and that's that's concerning. That that is really concerning. We we have to sort of get get. People with those sorts of disorders respond to – maybe that's why the structure and the and the centralized authority felt good to them because they – when they're contained, they're actually better. But unfortunately, that containment included um, inciting delusional thinking, which I saw a lot of. But I'll let right. you comment. Yeah, right. that's, that, that's very, very interesting. Yeah. I mean I'm always slightly surprised by how many people seem to think that – Every behavior that you might indulge in should be either compulsory or forbidden. Yeah, but there's no in between. <laughs> that, but that that kind of on off black white all in all out. Yeah, that, that's, exactly. That's that's a certain psychology. That's not a normal psychology. That, I, mean, that I is, remember that having is, an argument with a with a um, a very prominent American philosopher a long time ago uh, along these lines, uh, and and we were talking about genetic testing. You know, mm. should people get themselves tested for? Uh, rare diseases when this was just becoming a possibility yeah. um and i said yeah i think great if they want to and he said so you think they should be compulsorily tested at birth? <laughs> said, no 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 i didn't say that i said i said if, if they want to wow he said well no come on you've either got to do it to everybody or nobody I said, why? Why, why can't yeah. why can't people volunteer for these things if they want and not if they don't and he, it just didn't compute for him well, you know, there, there's, no, there, come there, on, that's not fair. The, that's not, the, not fair is a primitive moral construct. That's not an advanced moral construct. It's a primitive moral construct. And I'm about your country, but this country is steeped in not fair. And I would argue not fair was driving a lot of the policies around testing and distribution of vaccines and then distribution of therapeutics. And you that's not – Back to Adam Smith, that is no way to, for a culture to function. That that is not allowing right. that that decentralization efficiency to operate. It's the opposite. Not, not fair was was the main reason we were given why we couldn't go down the route of of, of focused protection. Yes, you know of of focusing the the lockdown on the elderly and the vulnerable. That's right. While letting the young um, live more free lives, that would not be fair. We're all in this together. We've all got to do the same. And you know, we got to the point where politicians were telling us in this country, this disease does not discriminate. Right. It's equally bad for everybody. Right. That just wasn't true. No. I mean, it was much worse for old people. Eighty-seven hundred times more likely to die than a twenty-year-old. Eighty-seven hundred. I mean, come on. For, for what age? For an 85-year-old compared to a 19-year-old. Wow. Yeah. And, and the, the, the CDC has a, has a box up on their website that, that I think it takes 20 as, you know, as uh, the, 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 the uh, what do you call it, the starting point, the unity, and then it goes on to both sides of that and, uh, and uh, documents the probability of hospitalization and death as you get older. And it's just off the chart, of course. Of course, off right. the chart. Well, it, it, this is all deeply concerning to me, and it's also mysterious to me that the whole world fell victim to this, which I get this country because I, I know how pathological things are here. Weird to me that the whole world fell for it. And, and then – and the other thing that, that as I you know, was watching this all evolved, it, it was all founded on the policies and procedures of the CCP in Wuhan, exactly. China. And, and, yep. and, and that behavior that I saw right away – that the press was lauding as the only approach, you know, with remember the trucks rolling down the street with chlorine squirting out of the front and stuff and locking people in the room. There's no me there was no medical personnel on earth at that point that had thought of that as a treatment for infectious disease outbreaks. Nobody had ever. And it looked it looked rehearsed to me as though it was these were all ready at hand should there be an outbreak from I guess the lab in Wuhan. Now, whether the outbreak was from the lab or not, it still looked like this ready-to-hand procedure was designed to suppress anything that broke out so no one else found out about it and also to impress their superiors in the CCP because, uh, hey, I took care of it. You know, It's like there are no doctors involved with that. There's no infectious disease personnel. Talk to me about that. Well, I think – there is a disturbing degree of China envy um, that happened in the West quite early on, 
uh, oh my god isn't that brilliant they they locked everything down and and you know you you've got remarks from long before the pandemic with people saying hey, the great thing about china is that because it's not a democracy it can actually just do sensible policies right, quickly right 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 you <laughs> uh, I still hear is, that i still hear that <laughs> you still and, hear and that and this exactly. is that centralization versus decentralization argument yeah, again yeah. yeah and and uh, and and you're right you know if you uh, you know if you decide right we're going to padlock this um uh, residential block because it's got some cases in it um, and we won't let them out for three weeks. You can do that in that kind of country and there's no chance that the press will embarrass you, that the um, uh, the law courts will will come after you, you know. So there is a horrendous degree of unaccountability in an authoritarian system that is very attractive to people in power mm. and that to some degree is envied by people in power in the West. Wow. Um uh, that they don't have to worry about um, uh, being sued or losing uh, office, being voted out of office, or being criticised in the media. Wow. Um, and uh, I don't myself agree with you that it looks rehearsed, except in the sense that SARS had a huge impact on that country uh. in 2002-03, and the importance of eliminating that virus early uh. and the success in doing so, you know, 8,000 people infected, 800 dead, and then it stops. Mm. Even though people already caught planes to Canada with it and so on, they did manage it, tracing contacts and isolating them worked for SARS. It just wasn't that infectious. Mm. Um, as we now know, it didn't have a thing called the furin cleavage site in its spike gene, which is what makes SARS-CoV-2 so much more infectious. Um, and, and that Early elimination sort of seemed to work in Wuhan, actually. I mean, they did stamp it out at huge cost in terms of people's liberty and so on. But it's not working now with the much more infectious variants like Omicron. And so they've got a real problem, I but, think. But they, but they are doing – the one thing they are doing, though, is very localized, focused – isolations you know, they're doing quarantine what, what infectious disease has always been about you, you take sick right. people you quarantine them you don't lock down a country you don't take kids out of school you you quarantine the locally you're, I, I, you're absolutely right i mean quarantine is as old as you know yeah. it's centuries old as, you don't as a tactic. quarantine and a it, country that's the weirdest thing for some reason we just wouldn't consider it uh, it wasn't fair you said that a few minutes ago. You, you have to – everybody or nobody. That's the only way it's fair. I got COVID because I couldn't get the vaccine. I was running around the hospital where I worked trying to get it. And no, it's not fair for you to get it. You're not from the right part of town and it wouldn't be fair. Even though I was taking care of COVID patients and I wanted to volunteer in the ER, they lost a volunteer in the ER because I became ill for three months. That's such stupid policy. Stupid. It's what it is. Stupid. Yeah. So let's spend the last few minutes, the origin. What are your thoughts? Right. Well, I've written this book with Alina Chan, a brilliant young molecular biologist and viral vector engineering expert at MIT and Harvard. And uh, we um, were both curious about the origin of this virus. And we were particularly curious about the fact that the problem didn't get solved quickly. It should have been. It was solved very quickly in the case of SARS. Um, they quickly found that uh, palm civets were giving it to people in markets and that's why food handlers were getting it. Uh, and that then they found very quickly that the palm civets were getting it from bats. It took them quite a long time to work out exactly which bats and where. But nonetheless, they had a they had a route for the virus to get into the human population pretty quickly. In May of 2020, it became clear that the same pattern had not turned up in this case because um, the CDC in China announced that all the animals they tested in that market. All the food samples tested negative. The only ev evidence of the virus in the market they could find was the human version of the virus on countertops and in the sewage and so on. And so it looked like the market was not the place where it had spread. And by the way, that's where we still are. There's been a couple of papers come out this week saying, oh, it definitely was the market because more of the cases were focused there than we thought. And some of them were near the stalls that were selling mammals. But I'm sorry, the very minimum you need to prove that it began in the market, as opposed to being amplified early on in the market, the very minimum you need is an infected animal. Um, and we haven't got that. So we thought that we 
uh, Lena started saying very early, this virus is surprisingly well adapted to human beings from the start, unlike SARS. That was her discovery. And uh, it therefore looks like it might have been in human beings for some months. Could that have been in human cells in the lab, given that the laboratory that does more research on SARS-like coronaviruses from bats than anywhere else in the world is in Wuhan. This is the place to go if you want to study SARS-like coronaviruses in bats. Um, they've been working on it in, for in bats years or there. in bats or in human cells. Or well, both, or th- both. these are viruses that get out of bats yeah. and put into human cells yeah, yeah. and humanized mice. Yeah. So they, yeah. the, the record of their experiments is enormous, extensive, yeah. Yeah. and 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 involves tens of thousands of viral samples collected from a long way away, not yeah. collected from nearby. Mm-hmm. Um, mostly collected from Yunnan province in southwest China, which is where SARS is thought to have originated. Um, And when they looked for the closest relative of SARS-CoV-2, when they first looked at its genome, it was in their own freezer at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Shocking. Um, They they called it uh, RATG13. Actually, they'd renamed it the day before because... Um, they didn't want us to work out where we where it had come from, which was a mine shaft where six people had got sick, three of them dying mm. um, six years before. Mm. It's not the cause of the disease, but it's a very close cousin of the cause of the disease. Mm-hmm. And then more recently, uh, a virus was found in Laos that is even closer. And that sounds interesting, right? Okay. Yeah. yeah. This is not from Wuhan, so that's more promising, perhaps. Somebody traveled from Laos with it. Well, who travels from Laos to Wuhan? Mm. Scientists. Mm -hmm. That's who. The Wuhan Institute of Virology was taking samples from bats in Laos to Wuhan, Mm. not to Shanghai or Beijing or or Chengdu or or Kunming or any of these other cities. Wuhan was where all these samples were going. So it's, it's, you know, the, the, the parallel I like to give is 2007, a foot-and-mouth outbreak in England, in a place called Purbright in Surrey, um, just 13 miles from the world's leading foot-and-mouth reference laboratory. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, was that a coincidence? No. Mm. There was a leaking pipe at the lab. The contractor who mended it had gone to the farm where the, where the animals caught the disease. Yeah. So, um, uh it was very quickly established that that was the cause of the spread. So finding an outbreak of a SARS-like coronavirus in Wuhan is about as coincidental as finding an outbreak of foot and mouth in Purbright in Surrey. Yeah. Yeah. All form makes great furniture and it just arrives at your door in boxes, easiest to assemble. And you go online, you pick exactly which exact piece of furniture you like. I got the eight-piece sectional. They have armchairs, love seats. There's something for everyone. They are delivered, as I said, fast with free shipping. That's right. It could take weeks normally, but no, no, not with all form. And you don't need anybody to help you assemble it. It's easy, and you get to pick the base you want, the the, the, the legs of the, of the furniture. You can pick the the material, the colors, everything. And it looks exactly like you expect. It fits great in our house. And if getting a sofa without trying it in a store sounds risky, you don't need to worry. You get 100 days to decide if you want to keep it. That's more than three months. And if you don't love it, they will pick it up for free and give you a full refund. They even offer a forever warranty, literally forever. Allform will even send you a free swatch kit so you can see all the different colors and fabrics they offer to see exactly what works with your style. To find your perfect sofa, and I mean perfect, check out allform.com slash Drew. That is A-L-L-F-O-R-M. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash Drew. Well, Master Spas, you're going to love the idea for family and friends. Get a Michael Phelps Swim Spa by Master Spas. A Michael Phelps Swim Spa combines the benefit of a pool with the therapy of a hot tub. Comes in many sizes. The Michael Phelps Swim Spas by Master Spas have water currents. You can swim, do exercises, fun with the kids, whatever it is. The buoyancy relieves pressure on aching joints. It's really a little, it's aqua therapeutics. You can enjoy relaxation in the massage therapy seats of the swim spa. Michael Phelps swim spas are 100% made in the USA by 
by Master Spas, the world's largest swim spa manufacturer. You're going to love it. Go to masterspas.com. Put in the promo code DREW to save $1,000 on a Michael Phelps swim spa or $500 on a Master Spas hot tub. That is Master Spas, plural, masterspas.com, promo code DREW. And there are actually some genetic footprints uh, on the genome, too. They're sort of astonishing, right? The gist of it. Yeah, well, the, the, the big one and the one that, that, that um, very much worried a lot of senior virologists in private in the beginning of the pandemic, though they weren't good enough to share their concerns with us in public, um, is this thing called the furin cleavage site. It's what makes the virus so infectious. Um, and uh, it's a... A, a fairly massive insertion into this virus compared with all its relatives. Uh, it's a 12 base pair insertion. Now that doesn't come about overnight by accident. That's a pretty big evolutionary change to get this bigger chunk of RNA into one of your genes. Mm-hmm. And at that point we say, right, well, could it have been put in artificially? Um, oh, and by the way, uh, you know, there was a prediction made right at the start Look, we're bound to find a wild virus with one of these in, these furin cleavage sites in, a closely related wild virus. No SARS-like virus has ever been found with this feature in right, it before. Right, And oh, they've or, found or they've, the one from Laos, the one from uh, uh, Yunnan, very closely related, no sign of the furin cleavage site. Yeah. What have scientists been doing increasingly in various parts of the world, including Wuhan in recent years, putting furin cleavage sites into viruses to make them easier to grow in the laboratory. Have they done that with a SARS-like virus? No, they've done it with a MERS-like virus at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But they did, we now know, and we didn't find this out till August 2021, they did put in a proposal to a grant funding body to put novel human cleavage sites into uh, novel uh, SARS-like coronaviruses. Uh, and the, you know, this was a, a team that was collaborating with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So uh, Alina's way of describing this is um, uh, we find that people are proposing to stick horns onto the heads of horses in Wuhan. And then a unicorn turns up in Wuhan, right. and we're supposed to say nothing to do with that project. Right. It's about that unusual. Right. And, and, and why were they doing this? What, why did they want to adjust the viruses in this manner? Well, it, it, the, the reasoning is perfectly sound, although in retrospect somewhat uh, too risky. Um, the reasoning was they wanted to predict and prevent the next pandemic. Uh, the way to do that, they thought, and there was a big argument within virology about this. Some virologists said this is not going to work. It's not going to be helpful and it's too risky. Others said, no, no, this is the right thing to do, is to go out and sample wildlife and find any virus that looks like ones that might cause a disease. There are millions of viruses out there, so mm-hmm. it's going to be a hell of a task mm-hmm. spotting the right one. Right. But bring it back to the lab. Now, when you get it back to the lab, The chances are you're not going to be able to grow it in a cell on the laboratory bench. That's a pretty tricky thing to achieve, okay? Most viruses are saying, hang on, I'm not in a bat. So this just allows human cell growth, essentially. So so what they were wanting to do was was make it easier to grow them in the lab. One Mm. way to do that is to put a furin cleavage site in. Another way is to swap the spike gene out of the new virus you found into a virus that you can grow, Mm. And that way you can um, test what effect this spike gene has, uh, how dangerous it is. Mm -hmm. And that was the gain-of-function experiment Mm. that they were doing right up till we know in 2018 they did a report that was secret, but it was eventually leaked, that in the Wuhan Institute of Virology they did this, and in some cases they caused a 10,000 times increase in the infectivity of the virus by doing that. So they were they were looking for a gas leak with a lighted match, we can now see in retrospect. But what they weren't doing was trying to come up with a bioweapon right, right. or trying to yeah. be dangerous to yeah. something. I don't Th- think their so. motives were good. Yeah. There's no question about that. Yeah. 
But But, can we say this publicly now? Can we have public conversation, uh, scientific discourse about evidence? Only just. I mean, for the first year and a half, you couldn't say this on Facebook. You simply speculate about that and you were censored, quite literally. So crazy. You couldn't say it in the New York Times where it it would be labeled a debunked conspiracy theory to even discuss the possibility of an accidental leak from a laboratory. Not even the manipulation that I've been talking about. I'm talking about an accidental leak. Um, is, is your book uh, and, being received well? Yes and no. Mm. Um, mm. <laughs> um, everybody who reads it who's not a scientist uh, raves to me about how much they love it. It's a gripping whodunit. Uh, it's fascinating. I had no idea, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. But most of the reviews by virologists were, how dare these two write this book speculating about the lab leak? It's It's pernicious nonsense and of course the chinese um uh, authorities have called me a notorious liar um but haven't specified any actual lies of course that would be too far um but uh so um we're in a guerrilla war with people who do not want the lab leak to be properly discussed i mean they say they do but then they they never engage in discussion about it and why Um, the virologists why why are they having such an issue with this you think well, they'd be the most because, go ahead because they feel that their whole field is threatened the reputation oh. is threatened the funding is threatened they feel that if, if this is proved if it becomes conventional wisdom that this thing leaked out of a laboratory mm-hmm. um you know then somebody who's been doing these kinds of experiments is in some trouble he's going to face more regulation he's going to face a cut in his funding uh, and he may uh, you know eventually uh, face uh, a disapproval from other people that's a pretty big disincentive you know mm. don't don't underestimate the degree to yeah, which yeah. people w- will will think um, i just don't want this to be true at and least therefore it, i'm going yeah. i'm going to seek out every bit of evidence that it's not at least we're not a- saying that definitely is what happened yeah, we still yeah. think the market leak is possible yeah of course but what what we're very frustrated by is that the chinese um, scientists won't give us the information that would rule one or other out. I mean, they could easily rule out the lab leak That's right. by showing us what was in their database yeah. and showing that they did not have a virus closely related to this in the lab. I mean, the one they've shown us so far is not, not close enough, um, but they will not show us what's in their database. So we do not know which viruses they were working on after 2016, um, uh, it, that that database went offline in September 2019, and it's never come back on. And they will not give us a reasonable excuse for why they won't show us what's in that database. Right. Uh, you know that database exonerates them you, if there's nothing not. in it. Yeah. Right. Uh, so it's, so that's what you call a tell. And then the virologists have a at least a bias that's affecting their thinking. So uh, interesting. You would think it's as scientists they try to at least point out their own biases in their thinking, but who knows? Well, listen, uh, Viscount, we, we have to, do I call you Viscount Ridley or do I call you Matt or where, where are we at in our relationship now? You call me whatever you like, but you can call me Matt. Okay, Matt. Uh, I appreciate this. This has been a really interesting conversation. I appreciate you spending some time with us. I look forward to reading the book. All of you should go out and read this. You, you, not only is it a, as you said, a thrilling whodunit, you, you need to be aware of this information because you're going to get engaged in conversation with people about this for sure. And you want to arm yourself with what's available. And the book is Viral, The Search for the Origin of COVID-19, available now on Amazon. Uh, Matt did it with Alina Chan. And uh, one more time, the website for Matt is Matt Ridley, R-I-D-L-E-Y dot C-O dot U-K. And uh, Matt, I hope to talk to you again soon. This, there's a lot more I want to talk about with uh, – I guess you want a Hayek prize, and I'm interested in Mr. Hayek and how he's faring these days. This is back to that centralization, decentralization conversation on a more formal scale. Um, uh, But I thank you for spending some time with us. By the way, do I call you doctor if you call me Viscount? If if I insisted on calling you Viscount, yes, but I'm calling you Matt, so you call me Drew. So I can call you Drew. Yeah, please. Thank you, Drew, very much. Fair enough. All right, we'll talk soon. And we'll see you all next time. 
For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. You're about to hear a preview of The Jordan Harbinger Show with an undercover FBI agent posing as an Islamic terrorist. I grew up with the religion of Islam. After 9-11, my knee-jerk reaction was to simply help. But what blew my mind about this case was the fact that he was the epitome of evil. So we're going up to his apartment, and it was right next to Ground Zero. And he put his arm around me and looked up to where the towers were. And he said, Tamar... This town needs another 9-11, and we're going to give it to them. You'd think at that moment in time, I could have just gone up and did my job, but I couldn't. I imagined killing him right there and then. I imagined stabbing him in the eye with a pen I had in my pocket and leaving him for dead. To hear more from Tamar El-Nuri about what drew him to the exciting and dangerous life of undercover law enforcement work, check out episode 572 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, honey, you know your dad's world-famous chili. Yeah, the one that takes 24 hours to make. So I was trying to help out and bring the pot to the table, but it was, like, super hot. And then I, um, dropped it, and now the floor looks all, you know, stained with chili. Look, the point is, you guys cool with pizza for dinner? (laughs) Honey? Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. It's time to breathe easier this allergy season with Breathe Right Nasal Strips. With instant nasal congestion relief for up to 12 hours, you can spend your time on your terms, not on your noses. Stuffy nose from outdoor allergens? No problem. We got you. Allergy season just turned into stripping season. Instant relief from nasal congestion anytime, anywhere. Need more convincing? Click the banner below and get a free sample. Breathe Right. Get your strip on. Use as directed.